In this teaching from Corner Fringe Ministries, Daniel Joseph discusses the plague of leprosy. Enjoy. Now, today, getting into my message here, we're going to look at a story. And actually, we're going to actually look at a couple different stories regarding the plague of leprosy. In Hebrew, this is called Hanagah Zara'at. Hanagah Zara'at, the plague of leprosy. And there are several examples in Scripture where we find a direct correlation between the plague of leprosy and sin. In other words, the leprosy that we find being inflicted upon man, upon women, was in fact a direct result of God's punishment upon that person for sinning against him. And so today, we're going to look at a couple examples of this actually happening. Now, I want to begin today by taking you to the book of Numbers, chapter 12. There we're going to find Aaron and Miriam. Now, keep in mind, Aaron and Miriam, they are a brother and sister of Moses, right? Miriam being the oldest, then Aaron, and then Moses was the baby. Well, here we're going to see that Aaron and Miriam, they get themselves into a bit of trouble. And let's take a look at this. In Numbers 12, verse 1, we read the following. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. All right. So here we find Moses. First bit of information I want to point out here that we get. Moses married outside of his family. He married outside of Israel. He didn't marry a fellow Jew. He married, in Hebrew, a kushit, what is often translated in, in some translations like the New American Standard as Cushite, or as we have here at times, Ethiopian. So Mary, Moses, he married outside of the faith, or I should say outside of Israel, and this apparently didn't sit well. This didn't sit well with Miriam, it didn't sit well with Aaron. And thus they find themselves compelled to speak against their brother. And moving on to verse 2, we read, So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moshe? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Here we see Miriam and Aaron, they begin to make a very critical mistake. They begin to elevate themselves, saying, God has spoken to us, us just like he's spoken to Moses. And they're looking at that. They begin to elevate themselves and snub their nose at their brother. He's nothing special. In other words, that honor that was given to their brother Moses apparently was just as much theirs as it was his uh, because God spoke to them. Therefore, we find what, what takes place here is that they begin to develop a false perception, if you will, a false perception of the situation. And in turn, it gave them a false confidence. This is the danger. Follow this story. It is so dangerous because it's so easy to fall into the same trap. However, as we look at the last five words here in the passage, notice what he says, and the Lord heard it. Well, what does that tell us? There's trouble ahead, right? So continue on in verse 3, we read, Now the man Moses was very humble, and we covered this last week, very humble, more than all the men that were on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. 
So the three came out. And then moving on to verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. Now you have to see the irony in this. It's kind of, if you will, the little humor. Here, Aaron and Miriam, remember, the Lord heard their words. And what did they say? Hey, God has spoken to us. Well, isn't that interesting? Because God's about ready to speak to you again. This is what's coming. And verse 6. Then he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Continuing on to verse 8. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark scenes. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? See, Moses wasn't just any man. His relationship with the Lord was one that was extremely unique. In fact, the Lord outlines just how special he really is in this passage because when he speaks to Moses, it's not through visions, it's not through dreams. He is speaking to him face to face. In other words, he is in real time hearing from God audibly. And they are conversing. That's as unique as it gets in Scripture. And when the Lord has this kind of relationship with someone, let me tell you something. You better tread softly around that individual, around that man or woman of God. You want to be careful what you say in regard to that person. This prompts me to think about that passage in 2 Kings chapter 2. There's a story there of Elisha the prophet. And we'll be talking about him in a little bit. But there's a story there where he's, he's on his way, he's traveling, and these young youth start mocking him. A man of God, keep in mind, double portion, a double anointing. He asked for it, and the Lord gave it to him. This man was as anointed as it gets, and these kids were making fun of him. How did that work out? Not so well. Because two angry bears came roaring out of the wilderness and literally mauled 42 of them. This is what happens. Because they spoke against a man of God. The Apostle Peter, he describes this type of activity. He articulates it quite well in his second epistle. I want to look at this really quick. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous in the Greek, tomates, in other words, foolishly bold. When they say presumption, it's foolishly bold. Now, one thing I want you to think about here is Peter is going to talk about the, the fact that we shouldn't be speaking against glorious men, the holy men, but he outlines. He's going to start listing characteristics here. They are, number one, tolmates. They are presumptuous, foolishly bold. They are self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels and the dignitaries is the holy men of God, doxus in the Greek. These are holy men of God, glorious men of God. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So here in this passage, Peter, he details the flawed characteristic traits which are affiliated with the act of speaking evil against another. I mean, specifically dignitaries. Unfortunately, this gives us a look inside at what's actually happening with Aaron and Miriam. 
gives us this in, inside look. Uh, in a moment of weakness, they're allowing their flesh to take over, and thus they begin to speak against Moses. And what I would call this is a classic case of Lashon Hurrah. Lashon Hurrah. And it quite literally means evil tongue, or you'd say evil speech. Mary and Aaron, they are guilty of Lashon Hurrah. This is what they are guilty of. They have spoken evil of their brother. They've spoken evil of a friend of God. I mean, think about that statement. Moses is actually called the friend of God. So how does the Lord respond? Well, as we continue in Numbers chapter 12, verse 9, so the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. So here we see God, in response to Miriam, speaking evil of Moses. How does he handle it? He plagues her with leprosy. And thus we have a great example of leprosy literally being the direct conduit to sin. Or leprosy being the direct result of sin. Uh, So, obviously the moral of the story is quite simple. Watch your tongue. Right? And this is what we can take away at, at, at a first grade or elementary level. This tells me, watch my tongue. James, in chapter 3, verse 2, he warns us of the following. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look at also ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. You just think about these mammoth, behemoth ships that are out there. And you do. You look at the rudder and you're like, no way does this little rudder turn this 500-foot vessel. I mean, it's incredible. And this is what James is getting at in verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world, a cosmos of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. And it, set, uh, and it sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. In verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird, uh, of re- beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. So he's looking at the glory of man and what man has accomplished. We've done it all. We've managed to tame everything on this world, in this world. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed, blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. God forbid we do as James indicates here. God forbid we come here on Shabbat, right? We give glory to Yeshua. We lift high, we sing praises to his name, and yet and go on in the rest of the week, we curse our brother, we curse our sister. We curse others. We curse those who cut us off. It's hard not to, right? You just think about these things. Ultimately, though, I want to point something out 
And I want this to resonate with you because it's going to help you. It's going to help me. It does help me. What ends up really happening when we end up speaking evil, Lashon Haran, against someone else? You think about it. We think we're elevating ourselves above someone else. And we're belittling them and we're bringing them down so that we can rise higher and higher. That what we talked about last week, pride. The reality is this. When you do that, you are reaping curses upon your own head. I give you a different perspective before you open your mouth. You know, I, I, I can tell you, the whole, what, what ends up coming out of this is nothing but what happened to Miriam. Right? It's the final destination of Lashon Hara is experiencing the curse of God. When we speak evil of others, especially of those whom the Lord favors, we reap the curse of God. We become an enemy of God. You know, when you begin to study the Bible, it's one of the things that I noticed as I really became an Advent student of the Bible. I started going through, and I was taken back by how much attention was given to the tongue, how much attention was given to evil speech. One of the wisest men who ever lived, King Solomon, he couldn't talk enough about it. If you ever studied Proverbs, you'll see this to be true. Let me give you a couple examples. Proverbs 11.9, the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Let me give you another example. Proverbs 13.3, he who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. I could show you proverb after proverb where one of the wisest men who ever lived warns us over and over again about the tongue. As Solomon, you got to think about it. Solomon sat back. Everything that he was given by God, this supernatural wisdom, he sits back and ponders all of creation, all the way that the things worked in this world, the, the intricacies of this life. And one of the things he talks about, one of the things that he addresses in all his wisdom is the tongue. That carries a great weight. Let that sink in. There's an old Hasidic tale. I want to share it with you because it illustrates the deadly nature of Lashon Hurrah. And this story goes as such as uh, there's a man, he was part of a community, uh, which also presented a rabbi. And one day he decided to go out and just start speaking evil, Lashon Hurrah, against this rabbi throughout the entire community. He starts going out and maliciously creating lies against this rabbi. Well, after some time goes by, he realizes what he's done is wrong. Okay? He shouldn't have done that. He's convicted. So being convicted, he goes back to the rabbi and, Oh, rabbi, this is what I've done. I've committed Lashon Hurrah. I've been speaking evil of you throughout the community. I want to make things right. I want forgiveness. I want to make things right again. And what does the rabbi do? The rabbi does this. Someone's trying to talk to me on my computer right now. That's okay. I'm sorry for the. So the man goes to the rabbi. He's, he's asking for forgiveness. At which point the rabbi says, Okay, I'll forgive you. This is what you need to do take a feather pillow, take a knife, and go out and cut it open and shake the feathers into the wind. 
And the guy looks at him and he goes, that's, that's such an odd request. That's so bizarre. Why would I do that? This is why. So he, he listens to him. He goes out, cuts it open, spreads the feathers to wind, and comes back and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, I've done what you said. I've spread the feathers to the wind. And the rabbi says to him, okay, great. Now go gather the feathers. Because you can no longer, no better gather all those feathers than you can make amends for the words and the, and the, and, and the, uh, um, the atrocity that you have caused with your mouth. And you think about that, of, of all these feathers casting in the wind, you can't gather them. That's what happens. That's the damage that we do with our tongues when we destroy our neighbor. Amen? Just a clever illustration to, to, to prove the point on, on Lashon Harab. Continuing on into Proverbs 18.7, we read, A fool's mouth... There you go. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down in the innermost body. It's amazing. Our mouth, if allowed, can be the ruin of us. Gossiping about others can be the death of us. The worst part of this is that your flesh, when you think about this, your flesh craves it. Right? Doesn't your flesh love gossip? Loves to hear about how bad other people's lives are or how, how much they've screwed up in life? All the bad things they committed, they're like tasty little chocolates. Why? Honestly, your flesh feels better about itself. It makes you oftentimes feel better about itself. Now, certainly, many of us have big hearts. And when we hear about atrocities, we mourn and we pray. But gossip is an interesting thing. The way your flesh responds to it, it loves it. It loves to be exalted. It, we love to be elevated. We have to do everything we can. I mean, honestly, we have to do everything we can to fight the urge of gossip. And the only way you can truly do it is if you're walking in the Spirit. This is what I found. The only way you're going to overcome all the various sins, not just gossip, Lashon, Harah, not just these, any sin, the only way you're going to overcome it, to walk in freedom, to walk in liberty, is if, in fact, you do what Paul says, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. And you're doing the things that Scripture tells you to do. You're meditating on the Word of God. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then you're purging the iniquity out of your mind and you're filling it with good thoughts, good things. You're meditating on the pure, the holy, the righteous. You're meditating on how to love your neighbor more as yourself. Proverbs 11.13, we read, A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Okay, instead of being quick to scatter the dirty laundry of other people, we ought to take this passage to heart, right? That the faithful, they actually do the opposite. They conceal the matter. They hide it. They don't want hurt and pain and suffering and belittling to happen to other people. Benjamin Franklin, he articulates the concept of what we're getting at here. This is what he says. I love these words. I will speak ill of no man, not even in matter of truth. That's a key component of Lashon Hurrah. Even if something is true, don't go around spreading it to destroy that person. Even in a matter of truth, but rather excuse the faults I hear charged upon others and upon proper occasion speak all the good I know of everybody. 
these are just, you know, there are just some days that I think it would be better for me to leave the house with a roll of duct tape, wrapping my head until there is no hole in my face. Nothing can come out, but I can breathe through my nostrils, right? How many of you have had those days? You wish you brought your duct tape with you, right? Which one of us could stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I haven't sinned with my mouth? Not me. To my own shame. This is why we're talking about these things, because here we want to elevate righteousness. We want to elevate goodness. We want to hate sin. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So we need to despise these things. We need to despise our behaviors when they don't line up with the word. Amen? There's a fascinating passage in the book of Isaiah. It's a passage I've always marveled at. One of my favorite passages in all the prophets. And I marvel at it multiple levels. And we're not going to get into all the different levels of why I love this passage so much. But I want to take you to this passage because I want you to see something. And this, is what it, this is what we read. It pertains to our topic. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What is he saying? The holy of holies, the real one. He's not taken in the fleshly manifestation of a temple where the Kohanim went. He is in the holy of holies. He actually is having a vision of this. He is literally seeing this with his eyes. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am done. I am undone. Now, obviously, most of you would say, Well, who wouldn't be undone? You've just been brought into the Holy of Holies. You're seeing the king, the train. You're seeing the seraphim. This is, in, this is incredible. Why does Isaiah say he's undone? Is it that alone? It's not that alone. There's a reason he's saying, woe is me, I am undone. Look at what that is. He goes on to say, because I am a man of unclean lips. He identified it. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah comes into the presence of God, he sees the glory of a God, and that glory immediately reveals his shame, where his guilt lied. And what was that shame? It was his mouth. It was his lips. And not just that, but he also states here that he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. They were all given over to it. But now something amazing happens in this story. There's good news here. As it continues, we read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. The coal, literally taken directly from the altar, Okay, you think about this. It was placed upon the problem in Isaiah's life. It literally touched the source of his sin. It touched his lips, and his iniquity was removed. Now, this is the beauty of this passage. This is the beautiful hope 
of everyone sitting here today is that the Lord showed kindness and mercy to Isaiah. It is interesting, the first thing comes out of his mouth, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. What did he do? He confessed. What does 1 John tell us? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's literally what came out of Isaiah's mouth. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He confessed these things and the, and the sins of his fellow man. And when we do that, we do have forgiveness. But you have to ask for it. You have to confess you've done wrong. Now, as we get back to the story, we're going to see that the Lord does do just this in the story with Miriam, that there is forgiveness of sins. In Numbers 12, 11, So Aaron said to Moshe, Oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterwards she may be received again. Now, a couple of things you need to understand is the Lord agreed to hear Moses' prayer. He agreed to heal her. But there was something um, important about this passage that I want to point out. Yes, he agrees to heal her, but she's still going to be shut out of the camp for seven days. Seven days was the marker for purification. When you read throughout Torah, you'll see this to be true. It's the marker. You touch a dead body, there's a purification. Seven days. You go through leprosy, there's a purification of seven days. And so the Lord tells her, he agrees to heal, but she's going to have to go out. She's going to have to be separate. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. Now here we see an interesting component of leprosy in general, and that is this. The result of leprosy is separation. It's separation. The shame that covers you, the shame that you committed, literally separates you from God. you got to see this. When you go to Numbers 5-2, we read, The command of the children of Israel that they put out of uh, the camp every leper. So you see the result of leprosy was, oh, okay, well, I sinned, and therefore I got leprosy. He has cast me out. You think about the correlation here and how horrible it would be to be a leper. How horrible would it be to be a leper? Terrible. You're literally, it's total shame. Total, if it wasn't humiliating enough that your whole skin has got a problem and you can be seen as a leper, well, now we're going to cast you off. Total shame. What does sin do? You think about this. What does sin do? It separates us. Look at what Isaiah 59 says. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is what sin does. Sin separates us from God. Period. Do you want intimacy with the Lord? Do you want to have a true intimacy with the Lord? Don't sin. It's easier said than done. But it's true. Those who practice righteousness, they are righteous. Those who sin, they are of the devil. This is what we read in 1 John. 
You want to be separate from God? Continue following your flesh. And you are going to be cast out. Horrible. Now, despite God plaguing Miriam with leprosy, we find that through the intercession of Moses, God had mercy upon her and forgave her sin and healed her. Praise the Lord for an intercessor like Moses. Amen? Praise the Lord. But today we have an even better intercessor, more powerful, more authority, perfect in every way, Yeshua, right? So I want to go to Matthew 8. I want to take you to Matthew 8. I want to show you what Yeshua did with a leper and the compassion that he showed, the intercession that he gave. This kind of plays into this whole plague of leprosy thing. Give me a second here. I have all sorts of craziness going on on my computer right now. Um, Bruce, would you bring up your computer real quick? Just boot it up for me and bring it up here. Your, if you have a laptop down there, just go grab it. All right, we're going to go to Matthew 8. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Well, this is an amazing statement by this leper. And to help you appreciate the depth of this, this statement, I want to give you a little background in regard to the process that Torah outlines between priests and lepers. Because you're going to have a whole different appreciation for this story. If we go to Leviticus 13, we read the following. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of uh, his sons the priest. Going to verse 3. Then the priest shall examine the sore on the skin of his body, and if the hair of the sore has turned white... And the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of the body. It is a leprous sore. Then the priest shall examine him and pronounce him unclean. Now here's what I need you to understand about what we just saw here. It just shut off. It's okay. We'll wing it. Here's what I need you to understand about this. Oh, here we go. This works just as well, right? The priest examines him and pronounces him unclean. This is a huge component of the process. When a person had a skin issue, they went to the priest because they could not determine whether they were sick or not, whether they had leprosy or not. So they would go to the Kohanim, and the Kohanim would examine them. And, and you can read number, or Leviticus 13. It's, it's very um, detailed as far as the way they would look at a man to determine whether this man had leprosy. But the critical component here is it was the Kohanim and the Kohanim alone that would identify the leprosy. And not just that. They didn't just identify the leprosy. Then they went out and confessed. They made a proclamation. They pronounced him unclean. So this is what happens with the Kohanim. They pronounce him unclean. Now we continue. Leviticus dropping down to Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. Do you see this process? 
Not only does the priest, he say, listen, you are officially unclean, okay? And this guy knew where we'd be going. He'd be going outside of the camp. But in response to that, this is pretty amazing, he had to put his hand over his mouth. And he would have to proclaim, unclean, unclean. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting. People wonder why that is. Well, as you read the New Testament, one of the things that I have seen from this is that in 1 John, what are we commanded to do when we sin, when sin falls upon us? Confess our sins. This is exactly what Isaiah said. Woe is me, I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. This is the first thing that proceeded from his mouth. And what happened in Isaiah? He saw the glory of the Lord. It exposed him as a priest exposes a man. It's very deep. The, the whole process, if you read Torah, the Torah is so deep. It has so many different levels to it. And when you understand those different levels, and then you go into the New Testament and you start reading stories, man, does it help you understand what it is you are reading. It gives you a better backdrop. So here we see what is going on here. Let's see what next verse I have up here. I have no idea. Going back to Matthew 8.3. <laughs> oh, Praise the Lord. Then Yeshua put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. What an amazing statement. Yeshua comes out. The man asked him, um, give me a second here. I'm not technically emailing Yeshua during the sermon here, just so you know. I'm just trying to get back up so I can follow along. This is much more difficult when I can't follow along with you. Okay. We are back. All right, this is so much better. We don't usually have these crazy difficulties, but apparently we do today. All right. Thank you for your patience. I got it. Praise the Lord. <laughs> All right, so moving along to verse 4. Let's move along here. And Yeshua said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And here's what I want you to see that is so amazing to me about this whole thing. Here Yeshua is the one. He's doing something that is unnatural for a Judean to do. He was a Jew from the tribe of David. Yeshua comes and he says, I am willing, and then what's he pronounce? Be cleansed. This is something that was reserved for the Kohanim. They were the ones to proclaim the one, uh, the lepers, who they proclaimed unclean. They are the ones to proclaim them clean. And what did Yeshua do? He comes on the scene and he does just that. And then the very last words here that we see is so amazing. Yeshua says, as a testimony to them. What testimony do you suppose he was looking to get? Now granted, he was, 
he, he defended Torah. Read Matthew 5.17, there's no question. Go offer the gifts that, that Moses commanded. You read Leviticus 14, there's specific gifts that you would have to, um, that you would have to go out and you would have to give when you, in, in the midst of your cleansing, in the midst of the seven-day purification. But when you look at this, when Yeshua says, as a testimony to them, this is what's so awesome about this. Imagine the story. The man who was declared unclean by the priest, right? He goes back to the man who declared him unclean, and now he's telling them, sir, look at me. Examine me. I have been made clean. I asked Yeshua of Nazareth to heal me, and he proclaimed me clean. Could you imagine the testimony of a priest who actually pronounced him unclean? He's now coming back, and Yeshua of Nazareth cleaned him. That is an awesome testimony. But that gives you a backdrop to understanding really what is going on in this whole process in, in Matthew chapter 8. Now, I, I want to move ahead really quick. I just want to give you one more story before we end today. It's a story of leprosy, the plague of leprosy. And that plague being a direct result of sin. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 5, we read about a man named uh, Naaman, or we, we call him Naaman. And he was a revered, mighty man. He was the commander of the army of, his, of Syria, beloved by his king. Now, unfortunately, this man was a leper. And it had come to Naaman's ears that, hey, there's a prophet in Samaria. There's a prophet in Samaria, and he can cure your leprosy. Well, he didn't wait for a moment. He didn't hesitate. He immediately went to this prophet. The prophet's name was Elisha, or in Hebrew, Elisha. And so he goes to Elisha to meet with him. Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. He sends a servant. And the servant tells him, hey, Naaman, all you need to do is go dip in the Jordan seven times and you'll be cured. He didn't like that so much. But his servants come in and pacify him and tell him, if he had asked you something great, would you have done it? And Naaman's like, yeah, of course, I would have done it. So he goes and dips in the Jordan seven times. Literally, his leprosy is cured. He's as whole again, baby skin. Upon which he is marveling, he goes back to Elisha the prophet. And this is where we're going to pick it up. This is an awesome story. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and he came and stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Okay, so here, Elisha, we see he, received, he refused to receive earthly, worldly treasures for a spiritual work that was done. Elisha wasn't interested in building his kingdom here at all. And he wasn't going to make a business, a money-making, scheming business, out of a spiritual gift, out of this beautiful thing that happened. So Elisha, in, in wisdom, he refuses to receive anything from his hand. You know, freely we have been given, freely we should give, amen? But dropping down a few verses, we're going to find uh, something happens, something begins to unfold. Because unfortunately, his servant, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, he doesn't carry the same perspective that his master Elisha does. And we read in verse 19, Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. But Gehazi 
the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Verse 21. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So, uh, verse 23, so Naaman said, please, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags and two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. And we move to verse 24. And when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master, Elisha, and said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant didn't go anywhere. I mean, totally. I mean, totally fail, total failure here. What are you talking about, Elisha? I haven't gone anywhere. I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 26, Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money? In time to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants. This is an amazing statement. And I hope you feel the gravity of it. We're talking almost 3,000 years ago. Elisha is telling his servant, is it time to receive money? To receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards? This is what should make you marvel. Elisha lived as though he was living at the very end, the end of days. Every righteous man of God, as you read throughout the Bible, lives their life in the kingdom to come. They store up nothing here on this earth. They do not work to build a kingdom here because they have already mentally checked out and they're living in the age to come. They're living in the kingdom to come. This is, a sta- this is an amazing statement that he says to his servant, what are you doing? When you think about the writer of Hebrews, you get into chapters uh, 11, 12, 13, and it talks about these righteous men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, living in the land of promise, which means the fleshly Israel, the physical land today. They live there as strangers because they desired the greater land. They desired a city whose builder and maker is God. A Jerusalem, not made with hands of men. This is what they did. So this is the frame of mind. And we're seeing this frame of mind right here almost 3,000 years ago. Elisha living in the age to come. Powerful. So, because Gehazi has succumbed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the world, desiring worldly things, seizing an opportunity, thinking, if my master's not going to do this, I'm going to finagle it. This guy's willing to give me silver, gold, changes of clothing. I want it. He coveted. This is what he wanted. He wanted the things of the world. How does God handle the situation? This is getting to the point of today's message. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. And keep in mind, 
this guy died a leper. He not only cursed himself, he cursed his descendants because he wanted the world's things. All because he coveted these things. The leprosy of Naaman was laid upon him. You know, these stories, how many times do I got to say it? These stories are life applications. They're warnings to us. These stories in Torah, the stories in the prophets, these are for us to apply today. So, looking at Miriam, she did what? She committed Lashon Harash, committed evil speech, right? We look at Gehazi, he was covetous. Because of his covetous nature, because he wanted to build his kingdom here and he wanted things, the Lord plagues him with leprosy. There are other stories I could tell you, such as that of Uzziah. Uzziah was the king, one of the most exalted men in all the land, the king of Jerusalem. And here, Uzziah, he became lifted up. We talked about this last week in Pride, but Uzziah became lifted up, and the story goes is that because he became lifted up, he felt compelled to do things he was not commanded to do. Because this is what happens to us. When we become self-exalted, we become lifted up, we think we're better than we are, then we start to feel the liberty to do things God has not commanded us to do. And Uzziah went in and burned incense on the altar of incense. Something received only that's reserved for the Kohanim. You can't do that. Uzziah does it, and what happens to Uzziah? He's plagued with leprosy. And he died a leper. So you have all these stories of covetousness, stories of Lashon Hara, where they have evil speeching, stories of self-exaltation, of pride, where your heart is lifted up, and you just, like Jeroboam, will just start doing things your way, regardless of what the Word of God says. All of these different sins, the result is leprosy. Separation from God. We need to take in these stories today. I don't want to be separated from God. Do you have leprosy of the mouth? You may have leprosy of the heart. But we may not see your skin, the outward appearance. How does God see you? Does he see you as a leper? I hope not. God forbid. If we got things in our hearts, we've got to ask for forgiveness. And we've got to change. I'm going to leave you with this one final verse. Deuteronomy 24, 8. Ponder this. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you just as I command them, so you shall be careful to do. Here's what I want you to see. This is a command in Torah, valid for today. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. This is, in other words, this is a command. Don't you ever forget it. Think about, meditate what God did to Miriam. It'll help bite your tongue. Amen? Grab the roll of duct tape this week. Grab one with me. Amen? The music team can come back up. Shabbat shalom.